Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr. Katani. In this episode, we're taking a trip in a genetic time machine, heading back into the past to discover the origins of ancient human populations and into the future to explore the realities of personal genome sequencing. Before we get going, here's a quick reminder about our listener survey. This podcast has been going for six months now, and we'd love to know a bit more about you and your thoughts on the show. Which episodes have you enjoyed? What topics would you like us to tackle? Do you want to buy some cool swag? Pop over to geneticsunzip.com survey to fill in our very short listener survey, and you'll be entered into a prize draw to win a signed copy of my book, Herding Hemingway's Cats. Thank you very much. The falling cost of DNA technology has meant that genetic tests like those offered by 23andMe are now cheap enough to be advertised as fun family Christmas presents, as long as you're really sure who your fun family actually are. But these tests only look at snapshots across the genome, rather than the whole thing. The next frontier is direct-to-consumer whole genome sequencing, as I chatted about with genetics pioneer George Church a few episodes back. At the moment, this costs around £1,000, starting to make it feasible for people with an interest in digging deeper into their genomes and a bit of cash to spend. But is it a good idea? Last month, I went along to the Love My Genome event at the Francis Crick Institute in London, run in association with genome sequencing company Veritas. I was there to see a short documentary film explaining what happened when 10 healthy individuals with a professional or personal interest in genomics had their genome sequenced for free in exchange for sharing their thoughts about the process and the results. And they also received genetic counselling before and after the test. The film sparked a spirited debate between the audience and the panel of several people who'd taken part, teasing out the merits and issues surrounding direct-to-consumer whole genome sequencing. In particular, there was some discussion about how much we really know about how variations in the genome translate into effects on health and disease, and also the challenges of analysis and interpretation of whole genome sequences. Right now, you can certainly get much of the six billion letters of your genome read, but there's still only a relatively small number of genes and variations that are clinically relevant and informative. The discussion carried on long after the event had officially ended and into the drinks reception, so I took the opportunity to grab a few of the panellists who'd volunteered for the project to hear more about their stories. One of them was Helen O'Neill, a molecular geneticist at UCL, who did have a pretty nerdy reason for wanting to take part – but she discovered some important information about how her body breaks down drugs, known as pharmacogenomics. I had always dreamt of having my whole genome sequenced as a geneticist. I think it is amazing to have the opportunity to use the tools that you take advantage of every day in the lab and have, a, have an insight into your own genome. Before you had your genome done, were there any considerations, things that you really wanted to take into account before you got it done? Not really. Admittedly, I went into this quite blindly really. I thought about it from the personal perspective of being something cool to have as a geneticist. I really wanted to start to look up all the various aspects of my genome but I guess maybe in the back of my mind I could have been worried if I thought enough about it but truthfully I didn't put that much thought into it. I just was excited to get it done. It's only in I think the day or so approaching the genetic counselling and the results that I started to think what if And obviously your genome is not just your own, but it belongs to your family too. And I understand you have a 
identical twin sister. So did you ask her? Because it's her genome too. Yes, that's what, she's the first person I rang. I actually rang and I said, do you mind if I get our genome sequenced? And she said, cool, go for it. <laughs> so buy one, get one free, I guess. Absolutely, buy none, get one free. <laughs> <laughs> and when you got the results, were there any things that particularly came out that were, were worrying or interesting? Was there anything that, that concerned you? Um, I think to me the most important or interesting aspect was the pharmacogenomics report um, because there were two specific things that I have been given. One of them I didn't react to at all, but in the report it said, you are a low metabolizer. So I would have been aware of this and never prescribed it. And the second one was that I would have adverse reaction to it. And indeed I did and was told to just keep taking it and that it would get better. And had I known that, I never would have been prescribed it. And I certainly wouldn't have persisted in taking it when I had such terrible side effects. And I noticed as well, you are very large with child. <laughs> was there any information, because you got these results when you were pregnant, was there any information that sort of made you think? Were there things that you'd have wanted to know? I think everyone who's pregnant is always a worry that you're going to find out something. I was hoping more than anything it would put my mind at ease. And it definitely made me feel that for going forward, the information certainly regarding my genome and the pharmacogenomics that is something I would want to know ab initio from the beginning of my child's life and not put them through having to take medication that would not suit them. With pharmacogenomics, I find it's quite interesting because it feels like there's more of a definite link between you have this variation, probably need this drug or that drug or this dose. But when it comes to things like traits and disease risk, there's much more of a black box between your genome and how you actually come out. I think our genomes in general are black boxes. We have rare glints of light from which we can see out of, but for the whole we are still trying to pick away pieces to get a clearer picture. And it will be like that for a long time. I think in order to get to the point where we have a very clear picture, every single one of us holds a piece of a puzzle. And if we contribute that, then maybe we'll get a better picture. Another geneticist who took part in the project was Jess Buxton, a senior lecturer in medical genetics at Kingston University, who had a personal as well as a professional reason for wanting to delve into her genome. So my initial reasons for wanting to do it was having been involved for 30 years in genetics, I was just really curious. To me, it was just very exciting that we can now do this in just a matter of a few weeks. Having done my PhD in human genetics and it took me three years as part of a team to identify a mutation in a single gene, you know, not because we were particularly slow or particularly bad at lab work, but because that's how long it took. And I now, feel your pain. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that there is a lot of people in genetics who are just blown away by the speed of progress in the field. I did have also a personal reason for wanting to know if I had any of the known mutations in any of the breast cancer predisposition genes, of which there are quite a few, BRCA1, BRCA2 being the most well-known, but there are a few others. I lost my mum. She developed breast cancer at the age of 57 and sadly passed away at the age of 60. And I have other relatives on my mother's side of the family who've been affected, but not quite enough to kind of go through the usual routes to be identified as someone who would be able to access genetic services on the NHS. So I thought, I've got this opportunity, I would really like to know. So tell me a little bit about the process. So what did you do, what happened before, and what happened afterwards when you got your results? So we basically just had to spit in a tube to provide some DNA from a saliva sample. There was a pre-test counselling session where it was explained very clearly to us the kind of information that we would get back and more importantly the kind of information that wouldn't be possible to get back from the test. 
and that was very clearly laid out before we got the results back. And once the results were in, it came in the form of a report, kind of divided into very important medically actionable things and things you might want to just know and then kind of what I would call recreational genetics so you know whether you can taste bitter tastes or not and your ancestry potentially oh you have blue eyes exactly. and blonde hair yeah. so <laughs> I found out I had blue eyes and blonde hair mm, gosh <laughs> and I have to ask about the breast cancer genes because that was your reason yeah. for doing it what came out there yeah. So the absolute standout finding for me was that I don't have any of the known mutations currently known to really increase the risk of breast cancer. Of course, I know that that doesn't mean to say that there aren't mutations that we don't know about yet that couldn't be tested for, or there might be indeed genes that we don't even know about that might be involved. But the incredible feeling of relief I got from just knowing that I don't have any of the obvious kind of guilty culprits, it made me realise that I didn't even realise how much I'd been worrying about it until I got this kind of all clear. And you have family as well, so that must have felt like a bit of a relief for them. Although, as you say, these are the known mutations. There are potentially known unknowns yes, as well. Absolutely. And the other thing I thought was really nice about the genome sequence we had done was it was made very clear that this is going to be a dynamic report. You know, this will evolve over time. And as new knowledge is found, and this will be fed back to us as new variants are found, we'll be told, you know, whether we do have any of those. But for the immediate kind of present, I was able to tell both my daughters, who are 18 and 23, I was able to say, I don't have this, so, you know, there's no chance really that you have any of these either. With all the caveats, I mean, they've probably heard enough genetics from me over their lifetimes, but with the usual caveats, well, there's new mutations, you know, and there's rare variants and blah, 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 but it was good news for us as a family. And did you do anything else as a result of what came back to you? So I did join the gym. Uh, I can't. <laughs> have I did you been? Re I did rejoin the gym, I should say. I have been twice. I think this was a couple of months ago. So initially, the thing I thought was, wow, I've been really lucky here, you know, not to have any of these really horrible risk variants that, you know, some people have to make very difficult decisions. You know, the famous example being Angelina Jolie, who had inherited a BRCA1 mutation and decided to go ahead with a double mastectomy and I think also had her ovaries removed. And so I thought, well, it's all down to me now. You know, I really should make the most of this and really just get on with doing everything I can to be as healthy as possible. But as you can see, I am holding a glass of wine in my hand at the moment. So, you know, I guess it's real life, isn't it? And we all try and do the best we can most of the time. Jess's genetic test was able to put her mind at rest. But for another participant, biotech advisor Iacon Miyajetan Moby, known as AJ to his friends, the test led to an important medical discovery, although not quite in the way that he expected. So I wasn't particularly sort of thinking about finding anything. As someone who has an academic background in sort of psychiatric genetics, who then went to work in a, a genomic startup, I felt like I was being somewhat hypocritical by not actually having had my own genome sequenced. So when the opportunity came forward for me to actually do this, I thought, you know what? I advocate people owning their own health data, and this is an opportunity to own one aspect of my health data. Why not go for it? And why not take that leap? And that was, that was why I did it. How did you find the process of going through the pre-test counselling, the post-test counselling? Was it what you expected? It was more or less what I expected. I think probably like a lot of the participants, I was a little impatient because I felt I knew quite a lot, at least with the pre-test, I felt like I knew quite a lot of you know, the risks and you know, 
what are the things that need yeah, to be yeah, aware of. Yeah, the genome, blah. Yeah, exactly, how, how <laughs> DNA works and what it means and all that stuff. Um, but when, you know, right before the moment I was getting my results, there was a certain sort of wave of nervousness and nervous anticipation and, you know, a little bit of fear. You know, I'm not going to deny that. And having someone there, even virtually, to walk me through the results was comforting. What did your results tell you from the health perspective and then maybe from the other perspectives that they were looking at? So the results, as I said in the, the documentary, were not very interesting at all. Although I did get two results that illustrated an elevated risk of certain conditions. One was uh, lactose intolerance, which was completely uh, new to me. And the other was chronic kidney disease, which has a lot of, um, it's a polygenic, it's got a lot of environmental factors as well associated with it. So it's not a direct link, but you know, I do have an elevated risk of getting that. Um, so that was from a clinical perspective, like I said, not very interesting. And then, you know, you got some cool sort of health traits, lifestyle traits stuff that, that was interesting and kind of fun. What actually was perhaps more instructive for me was that a lot of the data that they were using to make decisions about what my various traits meant weren't actually related to people of my ethnicity, right? And one of the things that, you know, I think we really need to consider within the medical community is how to democratize access to these new technologies and build better data sets that are actually more encompassing of the world that we live in. Absolutely. It's a global genome, not just a human genome. Exactly. And you told an interesting story in the debate afterwards that you'd got your genome done, there was nothing particularly interesting in there, and then you went to the doctor. What <laughs> happened then? Yeah, it was quite a funny transition. So, uh, you know, there was, I think, a three days or so between getting my results and, and just going to get travel vaccines, right? Uh, so I got my results, nothing serious to worry about. I was feeling great. And then I went to get my travel vaccines and by chance, you know, the nurse said, let me check your, your blood pressure. She took my blood pressure. It was high. Uh, she looked at my history, my medical history, and she saw that I had a, a history of elevated blood pressure. She said, maybe we should put you on, you know, a 24-hour blood pressure monitor. I went on that, came back the next day, and she said, we've got to do something about this. This is a real concern. And a couple of days after that, I was on blood pressure medication. So I spent all my time worrying about what my genetic results were going to tell me, but actually there was something far more pressing in front of me that I had to make actionable. So while I, I was fortunate that there weren't any genetic results to be concerned about, we have to understand that it's only a part of the puzzle. It's only one piece in the picture and we shouldn't overreact to, to that information. When we're thinking about the applications of this kind of sequencing, mm. a lot of people in this room, a lot of people in the world, is this something that should become routine for everyone? Where's your sense of where this is going? I have fairly strong opinions about this, and they are probably in the minority, but we know that you know, healthcare systems are creaking all over the world because of an aging population and, and the rise of, of chronic illnesses. And I think the only way to combat this is for people to own their own health. And I use the example in the debate of, you know, if I ask somebody you know, the state of their financial health, they can take out a mobile app, they can go to their bank, and they can see how much they've got in current account, the savings account, and it gives them the power to make decisions about what they're going to do next. 
If I ask somebody how healthy they are, they shrug their shoulders. They tell me, well, the last time I went to the GP, the last time I had a health check, you know, nothing came up. They have no way of actually making informed decisions. So my belief is that this should be widespread. It shouldn't be done in a cavalier fashion. There should be protections and safeguards and regulations. But we need to empower people to own their own health data. And genetics is the start of that, in my opinion. Finally, I managed to grab event organiser Alan Thornhill from diagnostic genetics company iGenomics. He also got his genome sequenced for the film, initially for the same reason as most of the rest of the panel. Mainly sort of scientific curiosity. Um, There was a little bit of family history, a bit kind of unclear family history. But if I was that bothered about it, I would have gone to a GP or a geneticist and had that conversation and had some testing. So it was more curiosity than anything else. I do find for many of us in the field of genetics, it's like... I do wonder what's in there. I would like to kind of see what this is like and and what's in there. Yeah, I mean, I knew basically how the test worked and and what was in the report. And I knew there was ancestry, which I didn't expect any surprises and I didn't get any surprises. I knew there was traits, which is just kind of recreational fun stuff. But obviously I did want to know if there was some risk of serious disease or something where there was a strong risk factor where I could actually change something in my life and do something. You know, a single parent looking after my three kids and... The thing they said when their mum passed away was, you can't die. Well, obviously I'm going to die at some point, but whatever I can do to try and prolong that life, I will try and do. So what was the process like for you of the pre-test counselling and then getting your results? Well, it's pretty straightforward. I mean, because I've worked in genetic testing for a while, not necessarily whole genome sequencing, I knew that both pre- and post-test counselling is really important to kind of understand why you're doing the test and post to kind of explain the results. So I, I, you know, not naming names, but I think I took it a lot more seriously. I mean, I ended up having probably the most serious result, but that's kind of chance. I think I took it a lot more seriously than a number of my colleagues who said, oh, I've got 20 minutes to have that counselling session. And and now I would be a strong advocate of make sure you're in a quiet room, make sure you have somebody you can speak to afterwards, all of that kind of good kind of clinical advice, if you like. And the results, what were they? What did they mean for you and for your family? Well, so I had a clinically significant result, which is, I think, probably quite rare in the, you know, if you took a general population. I have got a bit of family history, which, you know, was a bit unclear, but I do have family history of breast cancer. I got a BRCA1 mutation. And so, you know, that gives me an increased risk of breast, prostate and pancreatic cancer. And my father passed away of pancreatic. He had a lot of bad environmental risk factors, which I think maybe contributed heavily, but that's a little concern for me. More importantly, I have three children. Now, they're growing up, uh, 20, nearly 18 and, and 16, two girls and a boy in that order. Because the girls lost their mum from breast cancer, they assume they're going to get breast cancer. And I think they assume they're going to get it from some risk factor, genetic or otherwise, from their mum's side. So obviously it was a quite a big deal to find out, actually, I've got a, they've got a breast cancer risk, mutation risk, from their dad's side, which you know came from my dad's side. Now, I must make it clear that you know I found it quite a devastating result because I was worried about telling them. But we don't know that they're positive. You know, we've, we've got a coin to flip, a genetic coin to flip for the three of them so far. But they've been told now and, you know, we move forward and, and deal with it as we have dealt with some difficult things in the past. What were their reactions to it? Are they keen to get tested themselves? It turns out, I mean, I was aware of this and obviously I had to keep my mouth shut a little bit while the whole sort of testing and, and filming process was going on. And they were in the middle of their exams. So this is not a case of I withheld some information because it sort of suited me. I've changed timings to suit them and they understood that when I told them. They all had significant exams this year and I told them the reason I didn't tell you straight away, even though I was burning to tell them, was because you've got enough stuff to worry about. Their reactions though were, you know, obviously they were disappointed and they, 
you know, they said, well, we knew this bad news was going to come at some point. Obviously, they thought it was going to come from a different direction. So in a way, they were prepared for it, but they'd already had conversations between themselves about what the likely implications are if they turn out to be positive. For example, having a mastectomy. They've already talked about it and thought about it. But, you know, we've got a, another road to go down now where we actually get tested, properly counselled and so on. There has been a lot of debate tonight about the pros and cons of it. Having been through this process yourself, do you think this is something that should be made compulsory among the population or made much more widespread? What has this whole process left you with the feeling about whole genome testing? I have no interest, commercial interest, in trying to promote it as, you know, everybody should do this, it should be compulsory, it should be widespread. I think it's something that people should know about, but I've always thought that about things I'm involved in have some knowledge, understand it, and then make an informed decision. One of the questions tonight concerned informed consent. It's very difficult to have fully informed consent these days. There's so many nuances. But I think we shouldn't be paternalistic and patronising for you know, so-called general public. I think we should do our best to try and educate people. You know, I, I've heard someone say, whole genome is coming, like winter is coming. It kind of is, but it doesn't mean we need to do it badly. We can inform people, educate them. What we must do is make sure that it doesn't get taken over by people who are not prepared to put the work in, put the genetic counselling, the informed consent in. They just say, hey, buy one of these from WH Smiths and this will sort of solve all your health problems. That would be a burden on the NHS. Doing it properly, and I'm not saying how to do it properly, I'm saying there's a chance to do this properly, is going to improve people's lives. There's a long way to go and there's a lot more to learn, but I think we can do a good job of that. We've now got to a point where genome sequencing is cheap enough, it's fast enough that it really does become effectively a consumer product. We're really starting to see, I guess, early adopters of this. How does it feel to be one of those? Well, it feels exciting, but given my result, it's also, you know, it's not something to be taken lightly. But uh, the good news is I didn't take this lightly from the beginning. I knew that whatever result I got, I should treat it with some kind of respect. So I don't really think of myself as an early adopter, but obviously being, you know, middle class and privileged and educated, yes, I'm in that lucky group to be an early adopter. But it isn't like buying a new iPhone. You know, I think this comes with a bit of responsibility, which is why we've done this event. This event, even though it may not be perfect, was about opening the debate and saying, OK, we understand genetics quite well and we're struggling with some of the results. So is there a way to improve how we can deliver this? You know, because if we can't get it right, I'm pretty sure, having some commercial involvement in other things myself, that it's very easy for the commercial ball to roll down the hill without all the checks and balances. So I don't think a purely academic direction of travel is right and I don't think a purely commercial one is I think we've got to work together to make this a good effective offering you know with the best information available to whoever adopts this test. Alan Thornhill speaking to me at the Love My Genome event last month and you can trust that Genetics Unzipped will be doing our very best to talk about the issues and implications of personal genome sequencing as we move ever further into this brave new world. This is Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Genetics Unzip and online at geneticsunzipped.com. Please do take a minute to do our short listener survey at geneticsunzipped.com survey to help us make these podcasts even better. And you'll be entered into a draw to win a signed copy of my book, Herding Hemingway's Cats. Even if you've got it already, I'm sure it will make a better Christmas present than a 23andMe test. Not only can our DNA tell us a lot about who we are and our risks of various diseases, it can also reveal at least some of the story about where we've come from. 
Your genome is a genetic time machine, enabling us to see back in time linking modern populations to our ancestors all over the world. And, if you go back far enough, all the way to the very first humans to emerge in Africa. To find out more about some of these ancestral genetic secrets, I went to meet Mark Harbour at the Sanger Institute in Cambridge, who's investigating the origins of ancient people and finding out how they're connected to populations today. I started by asking the really big question, how did we get here? People have been trying to answer those questions since a long time, using different techniques, using different type of genetic data. Now we are using whole genome sequencing. Before, people used just few SNPs or variants on the DNA of people to understand or to look at those questions. We know, I think, enough now to say that we have, as modern humans originated in Africa around 60,000 years ago, and maybe there was some population structure that started in Africa around 100,000 years ago, even older than when people exited Africa. So people exited Africa around 60,000 years. They went to occupy the globe very quickly after 60,000 years. So we know the big picture quite a bit now. And people started looking at like more detailed, like how Europe was populated, What's the relationship between Europeans, East Asians, Middle Easterns? So we have the big picture. We kind of certain of how it came to be, but we are more looking at details now. So tell me about some of those details. What sort of samples are useful for when you're trying to pick out these details of let's look at a part of the world, a region, let's look at the populations there and figure out how they're related to each other and then how they're related to ancient humans back in history. How does that process work? I mean, more samples is usually better to understand the full history of a region. For example, like Europe, you need samples from all over Europe, but modern DNA is not enough in this case. People have studied Europe for decades using modern DNA. Then when people started looking at ancient DNA, they found very different processes that gave modern population in Europe their genetic diversity. So your question is, what samples are important? Modern samples are important, but also layers of ancient samples are important. So layers, I'm speaking about time layers of getting those uh, samples. So, I mean, something like digging around in graveyards from 100 years ago, 400 years ago, further back, Mm. how far back can you go? Archaeologists have, for, for many years, have catalogued sites according to culture, and they have some idea about what cultures were important in some regions, what cultures have spread. So there's always this study if a culture spread by spreading their genes or just spreading their ideas. And geneticists here come and like look at those hypotheses. We try to give answers about those old hypotheses from archaeologists. And what have you found? So I know you had a study recently looking at the population in Lebanon and seeing where they might have come from historically. Yeah. So in Lebanon, we we had a challenge. So ancient DNA would degrade with time. So this is why we, when you look at the ancient DNA samples that have been studied and published, most of those are in the recent few thousand years ago because this ancient DNA would degrade with time. But another complexity is climate. So ancient DNA or DNA would degrade with hot climate, warm, hot, humid climate is very bad for DNA preservation. So we had this challenge in the East. 
very few samples come from the Near East. So we had attempted to sequence samples that were around 4,000 years old from Lebanon. We found that if you take the genomes of those people who lived around 4,000 years ago and people who are living today in Lebanon, they are very similar. And this was very surprising to us because the region history is very vivid. You have a lot of migrations, conquests to this region, but they seem to have contributed little on the genetic side. So you have this continuity going from 4,000 years until today. Now, people who were living 4,000 years ago in, in this region were a mixture of two populations. A One population that derived from people who were hunter-gatherers in this region. Then you had a migration from people coming from the east, a massive migration mixing with those people giving rise to the civilization that was prospering 4,000 years ago in Lebanon. It's absolutely incredible to think that the kind of times that are written about in ancient texts, you can now get insights into the DNA of the people that lived at that time and, and went through you know, some of the, the historic events that are described. Yeah, this is amazing. I mean, it's kind of a time machine. So before ancient DNA, so ancient DNA is it's a recent tool. It's, it's a very powerful tool, but it's a recent tool. It has evolved because sequencing technology has evolved. So now we are able to sequence better and at a lower cost. So this is how ancient DNA evolved. Before we had ancient DNA, we had to make models or make some predictions. Some of those were good. So some of those were able to tell us how the modern human diversity exists. But the problem with models is you always pick up the simplest model. And human history has been very complex. So this is why ancient DNA is very important. It can tell you things that modern DNA cannot tell you or models cannot tell you. So it's a time machine to go and look at um, the genetics of people who lived thousands of years ago and how they relate to our genomes. With the study in Lebanon, what made you particularly interested to do this this work? I'm a typical Lebanese. Uh, I have a genome which is present. We can see it in present-day Lebanese. It's related to the Bronze Age samples that I've studied. It's very similar to people who lived 4,000 years ago in Lebanon. That must have been incredible to feel that connection. It's like your DNA is, is their DNA. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very interesting to look at where you come from, basically, and uh, look at your ancestors who lived 4,000 years ago. Yes, it's, it's very exciting. And finally, what are you working on now? Are there populations that you're like, oh, so interested, I want to know where they've come from and, and why that group of people is here and, and the journey that brought them to this place. So since our last study in Lebanon on the Bronze Age samples, we came across a very unusual burial that archaeologists were struggling to understand. And uh, I think this is where genetic can start solving those mysteries and this is what we're working on now. So what, trying to find out who was this person, where did they come from? Uh, yeah, it's a group of people who apparently died in a very brutal way, but they seem to be not from this specific region. Oh God, <laughs> like so. you're not from around here, so we're going to murder you. So we are trying to solve it with genetics, and genetics is giving us a lot of clues about it. Oh, wow. Yeah. When are you going to have answers to that one? This is like a whodunit. Uh, in a couple of months, probably. Okay, I'm definitely going to come back to you about that one. Yeah, sure. The Sanger Institute's Mark Harbour, taking me for a trip in his genetic time machine. 
And you can find out more about some of the fascinating results from his research on ancient Lebanese people and also a recent study on the genetics of the Crusaders by following the links on the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com. As Mark has shown with his work on ancient humans, genetic studies can tell us a lot about the relationships between populations. That's also true for animals, such as black-tip reef sharks, which are the topic of a new paper in Heredity, the Genetic Society's journal. But as study author Gavin Naylor explains to James Bergen in the latest Heredity podcast, the results from this research can be misleading unless you're very careful. We have long studied the diversity of different species of sharks, but uh, we hadn't really explored the diversification within a species. And in the few instances where we had looked at diversification within sharks, they seem to be genetically fairly homogeneous. That is not the case with uh, Cochrinus melanopterus, the uh, reef blacktip shark. In that particular instance, we saw that sharks that were derived from different island systems seemed to be genetically distinct. And therefore, we thought that this would be a fairly good study species to evaluate patterns of genetic variation in the context of a range expansion. You can hear the full interview in the latest Heredity podcast. Just search for Heredity in your favourite podcast app or follow the link from the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com. That's all for now. Next time we'll be back with more stories from our series exploring 100 ideas in genetics, telling some tales about sex and death. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references and everything else, head over to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip. And please do take a minute to fill in our listener survey. That's at geneticsunzip.com slash survey. Genetics Unzipped is presented by me, Kat Arney, and produced by First Create the Media for the Genetic Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard, the logo was designed by James Mail, transcription is by Viv Andrews, and production is by Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye.